Now, we've been going through the book of Isaiah, and, and I know it can be difficult at times to read. And, and it's probably one of the reasons why I've, I've kind of saved this to last until I, you know, I've taught almost every book in the Bible except Isaiah and, and Jeremiah. But, but, but I really believe that God wants you know, to, to feel his heart and his love for, for his people. And, and he also wants us to see the stubbornness of his people. You know, and we'll read it over and over and over again, as we'll see tonight. Uh, God's heart for the people to turn from their sin and turn towards Him. And we'll read over and over and over again them refusing. And though it may seem like judgment after judgment that we read, it's really the long-suffering of God. It's the patience of God and, and how slow to anger He is that we see really more than anything else. Now, I may comment on every verse, uh, rather, I may not comment on every verse that we read, but I think it's really important that we read every verse so that we at least get a sense of God's heart on this and the heaviness of His heart and the love that He has for His people. And so, uh, you know, as we read of the people's stubbornness and, and we, we go, well, how could they act that way? How could they not see? And how can they continue doing their own thing? Then we take a look in the mirror and we go, oh, okay, that, that's me. All right, I see that, Lord. Lord, forgive me. Help me to be sensitive, you know, to the leading of your Holy Spirit and help me not to take your love for granted. So with that said, really Isaiah 15 all the way to Isaiah 23 is judgment after judgment. And in these next few chapters that we're covering here, behind the scene is Assyria. And they're rising to power with a strong military force and as we know, you know, Assyria, uh, with its capital city of Nineveh, is becoming extremely powerful and beginning to develop this tremendous army that's soon going to go on this campaign mission, conquering the nation surrounding her. Now, God will use the tool, or use the Assyrians as a tool of judgment, but in the end, He's also going to judge them for their wickedness. God can use them whoever He wants to do the work that He wants to do. And so here we find Isaiah prophesying prophesying of the destruction that will come to these nations surrounding Assyria, but he will also speak of Assyria's destruction as well. So Isaiah really begins in chapter 15 and 16 with Moab being taken by Assyria. And, and last week as we closed, we kind of just read over chapter 15. There wasn't much comment. And, and, uh, but really, 15 and 16 discuss the destruction of Moab. And in fact, look at verse 14 of Isaiah 15. It says, but now the Lord has spoken, saying, within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised with all that great multitude, and the remnant will be very small and feeble. And, and, uh, and that's what Isaiah 15 to 16 talks about. And if you go back and you study history, you see that it did take place. The Assyrian army would indeed destroy Moab within three years that this was, was written. Then when we get to chapter 17 and 18, when you begin to read those, it's there that we see the judgment of Damascus and Ephraim. And then chapters 19 and 20, we see the judgment of Egypt itself. God will judge and destroy Egypt because of the way they treated God's children. We won't get to chapters 21 through 23 tonight, but it's there that the judgment continues against Babylon, Persia, Edom, Arabia, and the Valley of Vision. When we get to that, the Valley of Vision, as we know, it would be Jerusalem itself. And then finally, Isaiah 23 is the judgment against Tyre. So again, Isaiah is addressing now these nations concerning the destruction that is sure to come upon them from this Assyrian invasion. And, and the first nation that he brings up is the nation of Moab, which is present-day Jordan. Now we start with, now look at chapter 16, 
With this last call to Moab to respond to the mercy of God. Look at verse 1. To send the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion, where it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest, so shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords and chevies of the Arnon. Okay, just the fords. Isaiah is saying that the Lord is saying if Moab offers to Israel a land, then they would signify that they recognize the God of Israel, the one true God. Now, we know that a lamb is a perfect, you know, animal sacrifice which best depicts Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John 1.29. But if Moab were to recognize the God of Israel, then they would be spared uh, judgment. In the same way, listen, the only way we know this, the only way to escape the judgment that is to come upon the earth is to accept the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away our sins. Yet, obviously, Moab refused, and yet, in the result, judgment would come. But what is interesting is it says in verse 1, Send the lamb to the rule of the land, from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. That word Selah is the word rock. It's where we get that word Petra from. And it's that area of Moab, modern-day Jordan, that the rock city of Petra is located. Now, I've never been there. I'd love to take a trip there. My, I've seen pictures I think we've watched Indiana Jones and the, you know, the, the, the Holy Grail or whatever, and you see outside of it and all that. And, and I know my, my son Chris, when he was in Israel, he was, had a chance to go there to Jordan, and he said, you know, he ended up walking there, but it's a long walk, and it's through like the desert, and he ended up riding a camel on the way back because he didn't want to walk all the way back. But what we have seen as we've been studying the book of Isaiah is that near fulfillment and that far fulfillment. And there are many pastors and many biblical scholars who look at Isaiah 16 as the fulfillment of what will happen midway through the Great Tribulation. See, Jesus was asked one time, one day by the disciples, Lord, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus then began to tell them signs to look for, to watch for, the things that would be transpiring in the earth. There would be a warning to them that they were approaching the end of the age. In fact, Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 15 through 18, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand that let those who are in the Judea flee to the mountains, let him who is on the mountain housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. That abomination of desolation is that halfway point through the great seven-year tribulation period when the Antichrist will demand to be worshipped as God in the newly rebuilt temple. And Jesus is saying, when you see that begin to happen, it's time to flee. It's time to run. See, although the Jews would, in the beginning, hail the Antichrist as their Messiah, when they see this happening, the newly rebuilt temple, the abomination of desolation, now realize, hey, he's not the guy. Jesus is the real Messiah. They've been duped. And at this point, when they refuse to worship the Antichrist, he's going to go on a killing spree, any Jew that he could find. That's why God is telling them to flee, get out of town as quick as possible. And according to Revelation, God will give them wings of an eagle to bear them to a wilderness place where they will be nourished for three and a half years. And though the Antichrist will send out an army after them, the earth will open up and swallow his army. And so we begin to see this prophetic scene take place. Send the lamb to the rule of the land from Selah to the wilderness. In fact, look, he goes on. Uh, to the Mount of Zod, the daughter of Zion. Look at verses 3 through 5. It says, Take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day, hide the outcast, do not betray him who escapes, let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab, be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler, for the extortioner is at an end, devastation ceases, the oppressors are consumed out of the land, 
and mercy the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth, in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. So again, as the Jews are fleeing to the wilderness, God is telling Moab, open up your arms. Receive them. Cover them. Keep them safe from the extortioner, from the spoiler, and hide them. Again, uh, it's at this point that many believe that this rock city of Petra, Selah, is where they'll run to, which is in Jordan. They'll find safety there. So that the Lord is saying to modern-day Jordan, don't betray them until this time of indignation is over, uh, the time of the great tribulation is past. And of course, it goes on, until the king comes to sit upon the throne of David and to establish his righteousness. Look at verse 5. And mercy, the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. And so we see this picture, if you will, of that scene in the future. Now we go back in time to verses 6 to 14 and we read the destruction of Moab. Look at verse 6. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath, but his lies shall not be so. Therefore Moab shall well for Moab. Everyone shall well for the foundations of Ker Hareseth you shall mourn. Surely they are stricken for the fields of Heshbon languish and the vine of Sibmah. The lords of the nations have broken down its choice plants which have reached to Jazir and wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out. They are gone over the sea. Therefore, I will be well the vine of Sibma and the weeping of Jazir. I will drench you with my tears, O Hezbon and Elile, for battle cries have fallen over your summer fruits and your harvest. Gladness is taken away and joy from the plentiful field and the vineyards. There will be no singing, nor will there be shouting. No treaders will tread out wine in the presses. I have made their shouting cease. Therefore, my heart shall resound like a harp for Moab, and my inner being for Kir hears. And it shall come to pass, when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place, that he will come to his sanctuary to pray, but he will not prevail. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning Moab since that time. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised with all that great multitude, and the remnant will be very small and feeble. And so as you go back, as I said already, you see that, that really Moab was destroyed by the armies that God brought in within a three-year time period. And you read all because, really back up in verse 6, because of their haughtiness, their pride. You know, they're very proud. Oh, you know, no one can take us. You know, you know we, we, no one's going to conquer us. And, and sure enough, you know, that, that uh, they were conquered. Now, chapter 17, look at verse 1. The burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and it will be a ruinous heap. Now, this is the judgment that God's going to bring against Damascus. And he would again use Assyria to do it. He would use Assyrians to take out the northern tribe of Israel as well because they've turned their backs on God. So look at verse 2. The cities of Aurora are forsaken. They will be for flocks which lie down and no one will make them afraid. The fortress also shall cease from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus. And the remnant of Syria, they will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. And that day shall come to pass, that the glory of Jacob will wane, and the fatness of his flesh grow lean. It shall be as when the harvester gathers the grain and reaps the hedge with his arm. It shall be as he who gathers heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Yet gleaning grapes will be left in it, like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives at the top of the uppermost bow, four or five in its most fruitful branches, says the Lord God of Israel." In other words, God is declaring that the inhabitants are going to be destroyed. They'll be like the gleaning of an olive tree, 
There'll be a few berries left, a few just grapes left on the vine. But like, it's like the Syrians have come through and they, they've harvested. And they wiped out the majority of the people of the northern tribes of Israel and, and they're in Damascus and just a few people remain. Verse 7 says, And that day a man will look to his maker and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. So we talked about this already. God has been giving them chance after chance to repent, but they just keep turning their back on him and continued stubbornness until judgment finally comes, and then it's too late. But after judgment, it does produce fruit. Those who remain will be turning to God. Verse 8 says, He will not look to their altars, the work of their hands. He will not respect what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. In other words, they're no longer going to look at the false gods and the false idols that are there. They're going to finally get their eyes back on the Lord. Look at verse 9. In that day, his strong cities will be as a forsaken bow and an uppermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. Because you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold, therefore you will plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. And the day you will make your plant to grow, and in the morning you will make your seed to flourish, but the harvest will be a heap of ruins and the day of grief and desperate sorrow. So again, because Israel to the north had turned away from God and were worshiping these other false gods, it's a reason God's allowing judgment to come to them, using Assyria as his tool of judgment to destroy Syria in the northern kingdom of Israel. But even though Assyria is being used as a tool of God's judgment, God turns again on Assyria. Look at verse 12. Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like a rushing of mighty waters. So woe to these guys as well. Verse 13, the nations will rush like they're rushing in many waters, but God will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Then behold, an even tide trouble, and before the morning he is no more. This is the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rob us. In other words, Assyria is going to get what's coming to them as well. Now, here again, as we've seen in the past, within the prophecies of Isaiah, there is a near fulfillment and there is a far fulfillment found. Back in verse 1, we read, again, Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and it will be a ruinous heap. And in verse 14, Then behold, at eventide, trouble before the morning, he is no more. Now we know that this is yet to be fulfilled. There still is a city of Damascus. There, that is, that we've not seen the total destruction of Damascus. And there are important factors predicted about this sudden destruction that we read here. Because it says, number one, that the city is going to be left a ruinous heap. Number two, that this entire city will cease from being a city. It will never be inhabited again. And number three, it will happen in the darkness of one night. Now, I've shared this before, but what's interesting is Damascus is one of the oldest inhabited city in the world that has never been totally destroyed. And this is one of those prophecies that outside of the rapture of the church and the seven-year great tribulation that is yet to be fulfilled prophetically. But I believe it could be fulfilled at any moment, especially what we see going on in our world today. Today, Syria is in complete turmoil. The government that base it's, it's, it's the government that's base is, is in Damascus is locked in this death struggle against so many enemies. I mean, you have Russia working with Iran and Assad to defeat the rebels, which are ISIS and Al Qaeda. But what you don't know is that Syria possesses the largest stockpile of chemical weapons in the Middle East and the third largest in the world. It has a hundred thousand missiles plus. 
I read a quote from Israeli Air Force Commander Major General Amir Eshel. He said at one point, Syria is, a collapsing, is collapsing before our eyes. If it collapses tomorrow, we could find, it in vast, find its vast arsenal dispersed and pointed at us. So Israel is determined that none of these missiles leave the ground and that none of the chemical weapons would fall into the hands of those that want to see their destruction. On top of that, Syria would like nothing more than to provoke Israel into this quagmire in Syria so that they can all then turn their focus on to Israel. Now add all of these elements together and you've got just a time bomb waiting to explode. Major General Amir Eshel went on to say, a surprise war could be born today in many forms. Lone incidents can escalate very quickly, quickly and obligate us to be prepared within hours to act to the edge of the spectrum. Listen, when you have a military commander talking about acting at the edge of the spectrum, that's something major. He's speaking about using every weapon available to them, including nuclear weapons. But you see, Israel must be prepared against the threats that are coming against them. Israel's military planners must plan for a three-point military war. They have Hezbollah that's in, in Lebanon, they have Assad, and then they have Al-Qaeda in Syria. But we, we must not forget you got Iran, you got the Palestinian terrorists within their borders, and then you have ISIS. A different Lieutenant General Benny Gantz of the Israel Defense Force called the risk of multi-arena conflict substantial. Now Israel has always refrained from being drawn into a war like that. And we think, well, they'll never do anything like that. They'll never do that. But actually, back in, in, an event happened back in 2014 that tells us that Israel is not afraid to defend herself. About four years ago, and maybe you caught this for the first time on the news, was the announcement that Israel had bombed a section of Damascus. And the strike was a part of a plan to, to keep chemical weapons out of the hands of the two groups, Hezbollah and, and, uh, and fighting with Syria and Al-Qaeda, who's fighting against Assad. And they did it because they obviously couldn't trust the United States or the rest of the world to help them. In other words, with a very real threat against the nation of Israel, Israel acted inside of Syria. Now, something else to consider, again, look at verse 14. It says, Then behold, an eventide trouble, and before the morning he is no more. Who's no more? Damascus is no more. So that, you know, means that an assault by an Israeli group, ground troops into Damascus, it, it wouldn't be successful. They'd never be able to stop the barrage of chemical weapons that would bombard Israel. These weapons that, that would spread to their, have their deadly effects for days. Only a nuclear assault by Israel would be able to stop the assault at that, in time. Thus making it possible for the fulfillment of verse 14. Behold, at evening time trouble, and before the morning he is no more. At that point, the city of Damascus would be completely, completely annihilated. And especially if there are chemical weapons that are hidden around there and the chemical weapons is blown up along with the nuclear, man, that would make human life, the living human life there, too dangerous. The city would be gone. The Assad and Syria, would, would, they would love to pull Israel into this conflict so that they can then counter-strike against Israel. And if Israel chooses to, to use restraint, Assad, you know, we, we know he's going to be forced to escalate it himself, which could lead again to the first chemical and biological weapons going against Israel. And in an event that, that, that a weapon of mass destruction comes against Israel, man, the destruction of Damascus would be Israel's only defense against potential annihilation. Now, I personally believe, and, 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 and believe Scripture speaks, that when Damascus is destroyed, it's going to usher in the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39. 
as Russia will join in with Iran and Turkey and a few other Muslim nations to retaliate against Israel, only to have five-sixths of that army destroyed. And then the next step, the Great Tribulation period. All that to say, Damascus has not yet ceased from being a city. Now, when that happens, which can either be before or after the rapture, it can be at any time, but if it's before the rapture, I see it happening... You can find me on the roof of my house, okay? Because I'm going to be jumping up and down. Okay, let's go, Lord. Let's go, Lord. I'm ready to go. All right, this brings us to chapter 18. Now, chapter 18. There are those that see the United States in prophecy in chapter 18, and it's rather far-fetched. But when you read it, you can see why people might say it. Look at Isaiah 18. Woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia which sends ambassadors by sea, even in vessels of reed on the water, saying, Go, swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth of skin, to a people terrible from the beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide. All the inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth, when he lifts up a banner on the mountains, you see it, and when he blows a trumpet, you hear it. For so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest, and I will look from my dwelling place like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest... When the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he will both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. They will be left together for the mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth. But the birds of prey will summer on them and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. And that time a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth of skin and from a people terrible from whose they're beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land to the rivers divide, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, to Mount Zion. So verse 1 says, Woe to the land shattered with buzzing wings. Now some say, well, that's the United States. Our symbol is the eagle. Our air force is the most powerful in the, in the world. You know, the helicopters, man, they buzz. You know, the, the wings, you know, they make noise. Who sends ambassadors by sea, verse 2. Well, the only way for the United States to get to the Middle East is, is to send them by sea. And we send our ambassadors all over the world. They say a nation tall and smooth of skin. And what's our... You know, the way other nations look at ourselves, I mean, especially if they look at American TV, you know, tall, attractive, smooth-skinned people. A nation powerful and treading down whose land the rivers divide. And they say, well, the Mississippi River begins in Minnesota and it flows all the way southward for nearly 2,340 miles, finally dumping itself into the Gulf of Mexico south of New Orleans, Louisiana. Then you got the Colorado, which begins high in the Rockies in Colorado and flows southwest, eventually forming the Grand Canyon. But due to the widespread irrigation combined with natural evaporation, it, it dries up before it reaches the outlet in the Gulf of California. But then you also have the Gulf, the, the Colorado Rockies, a 1,900-mile-long Rio Grande River, straddles the Texas-Mexican border before it empties into the Gulf of Mexico. Then you have the Pacific Northwest, the 1,152-mile-long Columbia River, forms the border of Oregon and Washington. And so, they, well, it, it's the, whose land the rivers divide. Well, our land the rivers divide that. So there are those that say, as these events described as they, they deal with the United States. And they say this is a prophecy of disaster coming to the United States. Remember verse 1 says, Woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings. Now, I have a problem with this view. The problem is, it's not prophecy. Rather, it's what is called uh, eisegesis. See, there's two ways of, of looking at, at Scripture. One is called exegesis, which is what we do. Exegesis is the exposition or explanation of a text based on careful observation and, and analysis. The other is called eisegesis, which is an interpretation of a passage based on subjective, non-analytical reading. 
See, the word eisegesis literally means to, to lead into, which means that the interpreter injects his own ideas into the text, making it mean whatever he wants it to mean. And that since this happens to be some, so, there happens to be some so-called similarities with the United States, they make it fit. Just like I made it fit. I think I made it fit pretty well, you know. But we have to be careful with that. You know, and not be given into this. You see, upon clear exegesis of the text, the exposition or explanation of a text based on careful objective analysis, what this is basically dealing with is Ethiopia itself, not the United States. Ethiopia had sent ambassadors to Jerusalem to the king to make a confederacy with them against Assyria. In other words, Assyria was conquering and these Ethiopian ambassadors, big, tall, dark-skinned, handsome men, were trying to get to Judah, uh, trying to get Judah to join in with them and the confederacy to withstand this invasion from the Assyrians. So God is pronouncing the woe that's going to come upon Ethiopia that sent these ambassadors by the sea. And they came in boats down the Nile River from Ethiopia, whose land rivers divide, and Isaiah is counseling against the confederacy, telling Judah not to make a covenant with the Ethiopians because God was going to watch over them and take care of them. And God did. The Assyrians, we know, that, that, that would not be destroyed. Uh, the Assyrians would not destroy Judah. But, but Assyrians would destroy the Ethiopians. Verse 6 says, They will be left together for the mountains, birds of prey, and for the beasts of the earth. So all that to say, we have to be careful not to read things into a text that just aren't there. Now, chapters 19 and 20, we read is the burden against Egypt. Again, the burden is another name for judgment coming to Egypt. Look at verse, verse 1. The burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence, and the heart of Egypt will melt in its mist. I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother and everyone against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The spirit of Egypt will fail in its fell in its midst, I will destroy their counsel, and they will consult the idols and the charmers, the mediums and the sorcerers. The Lord has no shortage ways of, of, to bring a nation down. In this case, he's saying, Egypt, when it comes to Egypt, I'm going to have them destroy themselves. I'm going to have them just do, have a civil war going on. Verse 4, And the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master, and a fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. And so as they destroyed themselves, then we know Nebuchadnezzar would, would come in and he, would, he was the first of the cruel lords that ruled over Egypt, followed by a succession of oppressive Persian kings. He goes on in verse 5. The waters will fail from the sea and the river will be wasted and dried up. The rivers will turn foul. The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up. The reeds and rushes will wither. The papyrus reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river will wither, be driven away and be no more. The fishermen also will mourn. All those will lament who cast hooks into the river, and they will languish who spread nets on the waters. Moreover, those who work in fine flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed, and the foundations will be broken. All who make wages will be troubled of soul. Surely the princes of Zoan are fools. Pharaoh's wise counselors give foolish counsel. How do you say to Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings? Where are they? Where are your wise men? Let them tell you now and let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The prince of Zoan has become fools. The princes of Nop are deceived. They have also deluded Egypt. Those who are in the mainstay of its tribes, the Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in their midst, and they have caused Egypt to err in all her work. As a drunken man staggers in his vomit, neither will there be any work for Egypt which the head or tail, palm branch or borish may do.
and true to this day. You know, Egypt's economy remains unstable. You know, we see the way it is today. Look at verse 16 now through 25. And that day Egypt will be like a woman and will be afraid and fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he waved over it. And the land of Judah will be a terror to Egypt. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he has determined against it. And that day five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. And that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of it, the oppressors, and he will send them a Savior and a mighty one, and he will deliver them. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord, and he will be entreated by them and heal them. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. And that day Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Now this is a, an amazing prophecy. Basically, Egypt's going to destroy itself, is what we've read already. There's going to be the civil war. You know it's going to happen. But after that, one day the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and Israelites will be all worshiping the Lord together. Now, obviously, this is uh, you know, obviously talking about the millennial reign of Christ. Assyria, Iraq, or Egypt will come to worship on the highway of holiness, not to attack the Jews, but to worship with them. I mean, what a sight that will be! You know, during the millennial reign, when you got you got the Egyptians, and you got the you know the Jordanians, and you got these people the, 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 the coming all to worship the Lord at that. Point the, the true and living God with his people. Finally, chapter 20, just six verses. And the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and took it, at the same time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their bucket buttocks uncovered, to the shame of Egypt. Oh my. <laughs> then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, I bet. Their expectations in Egypt, their glory, and the inhabitant of this territory will say in that day, Surely such is our expectation Wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, how shall we escape? This Tartan, in verse 1, was a general of the invading Assyrian army. And when the Philistine city of Ashdod fell to the Assyrians, the Jews were certainly thinking that they needed to turn to Egypt for an alliance. And it was that time that the Lord told uh, Isaiah, take off your clothes, your shoes, walk around naked as a sign to the people uh, of Egypt and Ethiopia. I tell you, I'm really glad that I wasn't a prophet. I think we should all be glad we weren't prophets at that time. You know, I don't know. But see, God is telling Isaiah to dress as a prisoner of war, naked and barefoot, with their butts uncovered. I mean, it's to illustrate that, that if Israel turned to Ethiopia or Egypt for help, that they, they, would just, they would just be joining in with the march to slavery. They would be taken in. 
That's why Isaiah says, don't make a league with Egypt, but don't look to them for help against Assyria. Look to the Lord. If you look to man, if you look to the flesh, you're going to fail. Now, the counsel of God is pretty much the same, is that God is encouraging us to look to Him for our help, look to Him for our strength and for our defense. Don't look to the flesh. Don't look to man to help you, because man can fail. The Lord will not fail. But I still say again, aren't you glad (laughs) we weren't called to be a prophet at that time? I mean, you know... But here's the thing. The Lord loves His people dearly. Dearly. And that's why He's trying to get them to see. He's trying to get them to open their eyes. Second Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So those prophets of old, I mean, they would do some pretty bizarre things, but it was all for the point of getting them to see God's love for them. See, God was not concerned only about the nation of Israel, though. I think of Jonah. You know, God cared about the Assyrians so much that, that Jonah, God sent Jonah to Nineveh. I mean, they're, uh, you know, to tell them to repent. In Exodus 19.6, God told the people of Israel that they were to be a kingdom of priests. Now, we know a priest is one who, who stands before the people on behalf of God and stands before God on behalf of the people. So Israel really was supposed to be that example. They were supposed to be a spokesman for God and to all the nations of the world. They were, be, they were to be the missionaries uh, to the world and trusted with the word of God. But Israel made the mistake that we are sometimes vulnerable in making ourselves. That is, Israel kept the word to herself, saw the surrounding nations as nothing more than fuel for the fires of hell. And so they didn't do what God wanted them to do. In fact, they fell then to the gods of the other nations. And that's why God had to judge them. See, we must not fall into Israel's sin, having no compassion or concern for those around us who, who are headed for hell. We must look, to, to look at these people through God's heart. As I said in the beginning of the study, God really wants us to fill His heart and His love for His people. And for us just to see how long-suffering God really is towards us, but also towards those who don't know Him. And though we read of, of judgment after judgment, it's only after many, many, many opportunities for them to turn from their sin that God finally has to say, enough is enough. And I believe the Lord has given us the same opportunities to share the love of God to people that are on their way to judgment. And we need to pray, Lord, give me your heart for the lost. Lord, help me have a burden for those that don't know you, Lord. Lord, help me to to invite someone to church, Lord, that that can hear the gospel and and, and, and hear you touch their hearts. That should be our prayer, that we would not be like Israel, not be like Judah, but we'd be the the church that God has called us to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night, Lord. Lord. And Lord, that is our prayer. Lord, help us to have your heart for the lost. Lord, help us to make sure that any stubbornness that we have in our own lives, that we would repent of it, Lord. Lord, that we would, you know, see these people, Lord, that, that are out there that are lost, Lord. We wouldn't look at them as our enemies, Lord, but as you looked at them as, as sheep without a shepherd, Lord, who are, who are lost and in, in need of hearing the good news. Lord, give us a burden for the lost. Lord, even now, Lord, help us to be praying about who we can bring to church on Sunday, Lord, to hear the gospel message. Lord, you've called us to be that that spokesman and and woman upon this earth. Lord, help us to do just that. Lord, we ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. Empower us to be that witness, Lord, 
But for that's why you said that you, you said your spirit has come. Go wait in Jerusalem for the spirit to come upon us, Lord, that we would be that witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and all the earth, Lord, that we, we, Lord, we are asking for the empowerment of your Holy Spirit to come upon us, Lord, to be that witness, Lord. Lord, and to not blow our witness, Lord. Help us to, to walk in your Spirit and not walk in the flesh, Lord, and to be filled with your Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for this night. Thank you for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.